You're listening to the Startup Finance Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, a show entirely focused on helping you to build a financially fit and fundable business. On this show, we connect you with finance aficionados to impart their expertise to help your business grow. The Startup Finance Podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community and voice for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. Make your way over to startupcan.ca forward slash podcast to subscribe to this Startup Finance Podcast through iTunes and Google Play Music. This podcast is presented in partnership with MasterCard, a technology company in the global payments industry. MasterCard's global payments processing network connects consumers, financial institutions, merchants, governments in more than 210 countries and territories. MasterCard products and solutions make everyday commerce activities such as shopping, traveling, running a business, and even managing your finances easier, more secure, and more efficient. I am your host, Dr. Sean Wise, Professor of Entrepreneurship at Ryerson University. I bring more than 19 years experience in seed investing, including five seasons spent supporting CBC's Dragon's Den. I've published dozens of articles for Profit Inc. and even Canadian Business, as well as several best-selling books on venture capital, entrepreneurship, and pitching ideas. Want to connect with me after this podcast? Join me at 100stepstostartup.com. We're thrilled to have the amazing Margot Corey on the show today. Margot is the CEO of The Best Deodorant in the World, a company based in New Brunswick that she started out of her kitchen with her husband, Joshua. Her sustainable, natural, cruelty-free, organic, vegan, wholesome product can be found in stores and online worldwide. Margot is a compassionate, heart-centered entrepreneur who operates by two very simply Margot is a compassionate, heart-centered entrepreneur who operates by two very simple philosophies, people over profit and profit with a purpose. She's committed to sustainability and her dedication to using natural ingredients has attracted celebrities, doctors, and influencers around the world. She's the recent author of the book, Ultimate Guide to Organic Groceries with personal chef, football star, Tom Brady, Joanne Young, and America's healthy heart doctor, Dr. Joel Kahn. On today's Startup Finance Podcast, we'll talk to Margot about her journey in financing a sustainable and environmentally conscious company while she lives a unique lifestyle, raising her three children and living off the grid, but in luxury. Welcome to the show, Margot. Hi, uh, Sean. Nice to uh, nice to be here. So th- thankful for to be here, I guess. And thanks for having me on. (sighs) It's our absolute pleasure to have you on and uh, let's get right into it. So we're going to talk about a lot of topics today, but when we finish, what learnings do you want our listeners to walk away with from your podcast? That is like such a fantastic question because, um, basically in my mind, it's our mission. Um, I want people to know that we can build really huge, successful companies without, harming the world or like the earth rather and our bodies and other animals living here. So we can do both. How did you first decide that you wanted to do both? This is a uh, part of our journey. I mean, we, it was always in my mind that, um, 
uh, you know, the, there's got to be a better way to business. Where I'm an entrepreneur, I've done um, like many of us, so many different things uh, in the world. It's never really a straight straight journey, is it? It's always sort of like, you know, colorful, really colorful. So um, to answer that question more precisely, I would say it really hit me when I had children, you know, six years ago, we started this company and it wasn't what it is today at all. So we slowly transitioned into um, something that's just, you know, I wake up every morning thinking, gosh, you know, we're really, we're, it's not just business as usual. We're actually making a difference in the world. What did you start with and why did it transform and how did it evolve? We started with, uh, basically, I'll tell you our story in a nutshell. About eight years ago, my husband and I, we had started transitioning everything in our life to to natural um, things. We got very, very sick. We met an incredible doctor in Kelowna, British Columbia, who had told us that um, we were sick due to some lifestyle choices and toxins that we were uh, consuming and putting on our body and so on. And so we started transitioning. And the last thing we could not find was a natural deodorant. So, um, you know, literally we changed everything from our mattress even to the food that we eat. So with deodorant, I, um, I joke and say we turned our kitchen into our deodorant making lab, you know, we, for myself and my husband primarily, uh, for an active family, not wearing deodorant is, is a pretty stinky endeavor. And uh, so we made a product that was okay. It was good. Uh, it was just what you'd pull off the internet, basically with ingredients that we know to neutralize odor and absorb uh, sweat. And we sold that only because my friends loved it and, and encouraged us to put into stores. Uh, we had, we had, had no intention to become a company or a business. Um, but stores started selling out. To our surprise, the demand for natural deodorant was incredibly huge. So we uh, packaged it, you know, made it look pretty, put a label on it, and sold quite a lot of deodorant. Fast forward a few years later... My husband, um, he had to have surgery due to all the, the accumulation over the years, and he had to have a lump removed. Long story short, he actually almost didn't make it. So um, our story goes that really, I mean, almost losing uh, your partner and your husband in life really makes you reconsider a lot of things. So we shut the company sure. down completely. This was only two years ago. We shut it down completely and decided to reformulate, rebrand, uh, put it in a biodegradable packaging, make it actually good for the earth and stand for something. Because um, like I said, business as usual, I mean, you know, and I remember reading, there was a report called, uh, I guess there was a consumer, I, I remember like a, it was project, I can't even remember the exact title, but it was about uh, the future of corporate brands, I believe it was called. And uh it was about the future of companies like ours having a social mission that it was actually good for business, you know, in the, in the long run. And that's not why we did it. But I remember reading it and thinking, geez, you know, I want to wake up every day really excited and happy that we're doing good in the world. So that's when we attached our, um, you know, mission to it, which every jar sold now provides one year of clean drinking water to uh, someone in need in the world. Now, a lot of people have a misconception. They forget that the root noun of social entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship. So you still need to be resilient. You still need to have a good internal locus of control. You still need to be able to meet an unmet market need. But I think that people don't 
understand the paradox. They think that because you're spending more money on buying higher quality products or you're choosing and not to not cut corners, you're going to raise your expenses and therefore lower your profit. My experience, and I'd like you to comment, is that sometimes spending a little more doing things right actually makes you more money because it attracts better press. It gets people more aligned to your mission. People are willing to uh, cons- conscientiously uh, consume products. What's your experience? Has doing it the way that's healthy for the earth been a cost or been a benefit? Oh, complete benefit. And I can say I've seen both sides because in the past, our product was in a tin. There was nothing special about it. It was not different from any other deodorant. And there was it wasn't providing water for anyone or saving animals. And so now that we're here, I can say beyond a shadow, I know it's a very, it's a story, it's our story, it's anecdotal, but I know this from talking to other entrepreneurs. I mean, look at Patagonia, look at Tom's shoes, look at Bomba's socks. They, you know, buy one, give one. Um, I can say beyond a doubt that if you put our product or a product like ours that is making a social impact uh, beside the same product, deodorant, that's not making a social impact side by side on a shelf, the consumer will choose the one making a social impact every time, especially if it's the same price point. And ours is even less than our competitors. But let's talk finances. Let's talk the financial journey. So you started an international cruelty-free and sustainable product out of your kitchen. Walk me through the financial journey of this startup. Oh, wow. That's very, you know, how, how that is. Yeah, definitely. We started um, very small. We scaled very organically. Um, I want to actually touch on the point of, uh, you know, we, we were the product as it was before. I mean, we've even been in plastic, which we'd never put our product in today. Our entire company is 100% plastic free. But the, the financial um, the pre- preparation to scale the whole thing um, is really, really interesting because you want to, you know, I always in my journey, like in the operation, on the operational side of things, um, choosing the packaging and choosing, uh, the suppliers and the manufacturing and all that, um, we have also kept it very sustainable. People don't realize how difficult it is to find a biodegradable packaging with plant-based inks, which I want to encourage all companies to use as much as possible, anything biodegradable. And I would gladly give our resources, by the way, Sean, to anyone who asks. Um, Finding these things uh, is not an easy journey. We source them out of China right now because we're scaling uh, and it's actually getting cheaper for us to do because of because of how we're scaling but um and also trying to keep in mind that companies like ours do try to keep things local and it's often not possible to do but as much as possible bringing it back local as we grow uh it's a really interesting part of it as well now you talk about scaling and i know that at ryerson university where i teach you know we talk about you should nail it before you scale it you should not you know try to ramp up before you've found a sustainable business model one that, you know, acquires customers at a low fee and lets you have lifetime value. Tell me about your decision to scale, because that's all well and good in a textbook. But in the real world, textbooks aren't what you use. So how did you know when it was time to scale? Was there a demand you just couldn't keep up with? Or was there some other fact driving it? 
There was a demand. There, um, we we could not produce the product fast enough uh, to keep up with the demand, and stores were selling out. And as as much what a as, great problem to have. I mean, I wish all of our companies had that kind of problem. <laughs> Everyone does say that it is a great problem to have. And at the end of the day, when when you're, I guess, from my standpoint, when you're the CEO of a company like this, you have all these, you know, there's all these moving parts. When you have stores that are like calling, when is the product? We have our customers waiting, and you know, it's I really don't love the problem, but it is, you know, they could be worse. But it, we've decided to also bring in outside investors too. You know, there there comes a point where you're growing and you're scaling and you're um, putting the money back into the company. And I think it, it, you really have to also, I've learned to really listen to my intuition. And maybe this is a bonus of being a female CEO. I have no idea, but I've really listened to the fact that we know, you know, how much we can handle, what we can do. And um, there comes a point where we can only pour our own money into something uh, long enough, you know, and then we need the outside help. So having that outside uh, finance come in would al- is allowing us actually to uh, be able to produce one of our biggest runs, which is like 75,000 units. Um, but that's the ideal time, isn't it? You know, when you have the purchase orders and you need the capital to grow, isn't that when investment Investors are more likely to. I'm always worried when entrepreneurs want the investors to go first when they don't have the traction that you had. So tell me about raising outside investors. What kind of investors did you go to? How long did it take? What were they most interested in? What did you learn from the process? Sure. Well, we're still in the process of interviewing investors now, actually. We just uh, interviewed one this morning and they're just, everyone is so different. We have to remember to come at it from the standpoint of, you know, um, there are obviously some of them. It's really interesting. I thought they'd all be interested in the bottom line, you know, the dollar, the the the, the numbers, I guess, like where your company's at, what you're doing. But a lot of them, um, especially one we had last week who comes from Vietnam, really, really interesting. Uh, they want to know our story, our background, you know, what's going on, how we can uh, work together, like more about sort of our personal they want to know like our personalities more than um, the financial side of things, which it's all important. But um, you'll have we had, you know, some some. It's a really interesting question, but I find it's like all across the board, and we are still in that process. We still haven't finalized really any um, one. We had some funding come in um, from another source, but we are we're right there. Like we're right. You know, um, our plan, our goal is to. Uh, to be right around a, yeah, 350 million here in the next three years. Uh, okay, so it's let's, pretty- let's slow down a second. I, I, I almost fell off my chair. What do you mean you should be close to $350 million? Or that is dollars, I'm assuming. And are you referring to your gross revenue or the value of the Evaluate, company? Yeah, the value. So this is our, our you know, our, our goal as a company. We've just decided this is an executive team that w- this is what we would like to, to be valued at. And having this goal has allowed me to see the company in a whole new light, you know, sort of with the end in mind, I guess. Um, so it's the first for me. Uh, Margo, uh, values that you've shared with me and, and prior to this, you know, they're not just in your business, they're in your home life. You know, things like living off the grid and being good to the earth and being mindfully present in the moment. How did you integrate these values into the more uh, numbers side of the business model, which is all about channels and customer segments and cost analysis? 
Yes, yes. Um, no, great question. I mean, I believe that every company, my, uh, my our company has core values that we all sort of uh, adhere to, that we all uh, really believe in. Everyone from our executive team uh, to like everyone involved in the company, I have the most incredible team uh, helping me with all the hats that I used to wear. So I'm pretty blessed. And these core values that you speak of are... Um, what our company, I mean, how we live, like you mentioned, you know, off the grid, we're not, by the way, 100% off the grid yet. We're, we're getting there. We have a few different things to go. That's, that's right. Exactly, exactly. And so this, you know, it's not really in our day and age. It's nice. It's a nice idea. But we are building an earthship home, which will allow us to uh, to be completely off grid here soon. Um, now I was going to say like our core values, just being, just being good stewards of the earth. I mean, the amount of plastic like in this earth is mind boggling and companies like ours, um, I don't want to be in business if we're contributing to the disaster that's happening in the world, basically plain and simple. And we don't have to be. And so what I've done, Sean, is I've taken it upon myself to to um, help any business and to a certain degree, or if they write or something, I've already had a few from our last show write us and, and ask, hey, how can I also look at packaging that's that's not plastic or something like that? You know, we don't have to... Um, we, we can be in biodegradable packaging and still sell an incredible product. And like I said earlier, a customer would rather pay a little bit more to have a sustainable product. I can bet hands down. I think that I think I think your sales tell you that. I think that that you don't have to be the cheapest. You have to just deliver on your value proposition. Now, your value proposition comes from your underlying philosophies, which we mentioned at the top of the show are people over profit and profit with a purpose. Tell me about those. Uh, sure, absolutely. So the uh, basically a company like ours, as I mentioned at the beginning. Um, I'd business as usual. I'd rather not. Um, I'd rather not be in business if we're not doing something good. So the whole when you're talking about um, people over profit, it's the respect. I'm going to just like have respect for life. That's one of our core values. Um, And the profit will actually come, you know, Um, it's like it's amazing. I think that's great. And what about profit with purpose? Where did that come from? Profit with a purpose is um, having a company that's attached to a social mission. Basically, um, you know, it's actually it's not even just expected anymore. It's it's almost demanded by by the consumer. You know, I think there was a survey that found like 73 percent of consumers believe that companies do have a responsibility to do more, um, more than just sell a product, more than just generate profit. Seventy, Like 73 or something crazy, a huge percent of consumers believe that companies like ours do have this like ethical obligation to do good in the world. And I am one of them. So I when I search out for, for a product, I always search what's going on. You know, what, you know, is it Doesn't that cost free? a lot though? Doesn't it cost a lot more to take the high road to develop products with respect to your employees? Isn't 
that counterintuitive to some people who believe, you know, lowest cost of goods is going to win and that's the bottom <laughs> line. And if you want to hug the earth and, and, and be amazing, then you can do so with your profits. I mean, Warren Buffett doesn't want anything other than profit from his companies and then mm -hmm. he'll donate that profit to who he sees fit. What, yep. what do you say to people who are stuck in that 20th century mentality? I do say it's pretty archaic. I say it's it's not a good way to think. It's like the it's like exactly like you said. You know, okay, we'll do this now. We'll trample on the world, uh, and then we'll fix it later. Well, eventually, there's no fixing, and it's happening right now. They cannot clean up the plastic in on in the waters fast enough. You know, not to get into too much detail about the the woohoo side of things or whatever, but it's really really bad. Even the machines that they use to clean up the plastic in the ocean are made of plastic and they cost water to produce. So we want to nip the problem in the butt. As they say, we want to, our packaging is, you know, like people's packaging can be no plastic. You can clean up the beaches all you want, or you can not produce the plastic to begin with. So there's that side of things. Um, and the, and, and, you know, I believe companies. But isn't that more expensive? No, it's actually, it doesn't have to be more expensive. So explain to it, me how, well, to, you know, it is difficult at first when you first look at it because, yes, one jar, one biodegradable jar is more expensive than, say, a, a cheap plastic thing that you put deodorant in. Um, but in the long run, you're looking at major health problems. That's one way to look at it because plastic leaches into our body. And there's studies out there. It's no longer suspected, but the plastic that is leaching from your deodorant tube or your skincare tube or whatever gets into your body and causes major hormone, major endocrine disrupting it's a dis endocrine disrupting chemical. So um, you're going to have to fix that problem later on. It's very expensive on everyone, including medical. So there's that side of it. Um, and also raising our price, five cents, uh, five, 10 cents uh, deodorant when it's a $15 product, no one's going to bat an eye. Well, yeah, because most people are buying deodorant at a lower price, but they're probably not getting the true value. Now, your company is committed to giving back and making an impact through three important causes, uh, providing clean drinking water, supporting animal advocacy groups, and challenging companies to produce plastic-free products. How does this, do you feel, impact the customer's decision to buy the $15 deodorant to buy your product? Okay, so um, let me... So that's such a great question. Let me just target the $15 product. Um, our biggest, I guess, competitor, if you will, here in Canada, uh, sells for about $30 to $32 a jar. So sitting at $15, we're about half of that. Um, and also we're, you know, it's, it's, it's lower than, than it, our average competitor is about $18. So we're at about $15 a jar to $18 in some stores. Um, and to answer that question, um, yeah, it's just when when I look at a product, let's let me ask you, if you look at a product that has these three causes attached to it, you're like, wow, okay, it's a necessity. I'm buying deodorant anyhow. Let's say you spend six dollars on deodorant or something, and I'm buying it anyway. What let's look at the benefits. There's no plastic. Okay, that's one. That's wonderful. Why you learn about that. Let's look at um, the fact that the money is actually going to save a life, you know, not just purchase my deodorant, my necessity. It's natural. Um, it's going to provide a year of clean drinking water. And on top of that, um, impact day every single month, 100% of sales to animals, you know, that's 
that's been, I mean, that's, we've actually attracted more people since attaching these three causes to our mission. And that's exactly where I want to go. So we know Participant Productions, which makes uh, Jeff Scholl's movie company, which makes uh, socially relevant movies, you know, they still take a box office draw, but they have found that the benefit is the community that forms. When you back a, a documentary about women's rights or you back a documentary about uh, the labor movement or you back a documentary about global warming, you, you, you may get the sales at the box office, but you also tend to get a community built up amongst your viewers, your customers, your users. Have you seen that? And if so, what sort of initiatives can you do to further that community? And more importantly, what's the long-term financial benefit of turning your customers into a community? It's wonderful. Yes. And we have found that people are just, cause you know, it's really, people don't really follow products. They follow stories and they follow missions and they follow people, you know, the people behind it. So when we're creating this narrative, this story behind a product like this, it's huge. We do have community now and I'm, you know, we're contacted daily by environmentalists. We've opened up a whole other part of who we can be interviewed by, for instance, or something like that. And people are just, it's, it's amazing. Um, we've had some great media attention because of these social, uh, social impact, social responsibilities, uh, that we're a part of and the community built behind it. The people that are following are just loving the story and opening up people's eyes as well. Cause they did not know some of the facts on plastic or on water. They don't know that 780 million people are, don't have access to water in the world. That's insane. That's like we have like our responsibility, Sean, in Canada, in the United States, wherever we live right now, our responsibility is to do something. And if it's through a company like ours, I'm going to do it, you know, so. And, 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 and what comes to mind is I spent some time on Dragon's Den and I remember uh, Barb Stegman, another East Coast social entrepreneur making great headways in the world with her product, Seven Virtues. And she feels compelled to bring her product to market. Her product is a perfume made in conflict, uh, perfume made from ingredients from conflict regions. So she works with entrepreneurs from Iran, from Haiti, from Afghanistan, and, and she changes the world that way. Have you found a peer group? Uh, have you become a member of a support organization? Who do you turn to in the entrepreneurial world uh, to learn from, to get guidance from? Because not everyone has the same philosophy as you. That is an amazing question. And I would love someone like a peer group like that because we all like we're all some I know I, I'm very familiar with Barb's company. I know it very well. And I study companies like like hers and like I mentioned earlier, Patagonia, Tom's, Bombas. My mentors are also like I have, you know, um, I follow Susie Batis, who has a, another company, but she, you know, com I want I want to um, to team up in a way, sort of silently, like in solidarity, raise our flags with companies like Barb's that are doing this good and say, you know, why buy this perfume over here? Tell consumers, why buy this perfume that's not doing this much good in the world when you can just take the same amount of money and purchase Barb's, purchase this one that is doing good in the world. It's not only a social, it's not only our responsibility as company owners, but the consumer is voting with their dollar, dollar as well. And the consumer, when, when we buy as consumers, when we buy anything, whether it's a vegan product, 
product or product that's doing something good. We're telling that company that we want more of it. And that's why um, Procter and Gamble and Unilever and these huge companies are buying out natural companies that are doing better in the world because they see that they want that, that part of the market as well. And so I'm glad you mentioned Barb's company because that's exactly what we're going for. See, I'd like to go one step further. I'd like, uh, uh, someone in the federal government to take a handful of you awesome people and show how Canada is saving the world so that people can understand that they can make a choice with their capital and how they apply it. Now you mentioned mentorship now, and, and whether you're a social entrepreneur or a capitalistic entrepreneur, whether you're a entrepreneur or a seniorpreneur, a one person show or a team of 30 mentorship plays such a big role. Tell me about your mentorship relationships, where you found them, what you get out of them, and would you recommend all entrepreneurs have one? I do recommend all entrepreneurs have one. It's um, even if it's sort of a mind meld situation where you're getting together with other entrepreneurs that think alike, because let's face it, Sean, we're a unique breed. You know, we, my friend, Alex Sharfin, actually, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Alex, but he is unbelievable. Um, he wrote the book entrepreneurial personality type and he nailed it because it's a personality type. It's, it's saying to the world, like when you're getting together with entrepreneurs, it's opening up our eyes saying, wow, we're not alone. We're not unique. We're not crazy. We're, this is, this is us. This is our tribe. Um, growing up, like I went through school, like public school, you know, growing up, how many of us thought we were the weird kids on the block because we were these, you know, people who think outside the box and want to create um, solutions for problems in the world? That's us. And so, you know, I, and, and by the way, the very reason why our children, we're unschooling our children, we're actually world schooling them, which means they're just, you know, we're just very loose. There's no curriculum. We're just kind of like allowing them to be who they are, which is on their entrepreneurs, you know, but, um, that's a whole other topic for a whole other podcast. Um, so to get back to your question, having a mentor is extremely important. Where did you find your mentor? So I don't have a mentor at the moment right now. My mentors have come and go. I did. I do have, I do have a group of entrepreneurs that I, um, consult with that I talk to. And we are now creating, this is really exciting. Actually, I'm creating sort of an advisory board of um, people that I look up to that have built massive companies that have agreed to be on our advisory board. And um, through them, you know, we're going to have our monthly calls, even biweekly calls that are going to sort of, it's going to be a, a mentorship type program for all of us. But I, uh, I've had, I mean, one of my biggest, one of my biggest mentors, um, who changed a lot of things for us was actually happens to be Tony Robbins son who we met in British Columbia. And I remember him being a really, really important part of our life as we transitioned to, to this company. So things will change throughout your, the journey. Um, but it's just so important to be surrounded by entrepreneurs and also, uh, people, people that have done more than us, you know, people that we can actually learn from. Well, and I think you showcase that there's a variety of ways to get the benefits of mentorship. Sometimes it's peer mentorship. Sometimes it's just being part of the community. I remember reading an academic study that said uh, the more a startup is ingrained in its local community, the higher the probability of success. And it gave the reasons for that, you know, the economies of scale, the sharing of best practices, the attraction of common resources. But I, I think that you're showing that 
not only can you build a community around a product, but startups themselves can be part of a community. And I, and I think that's really important. Now, what advice do you have for people listening at home who now for the first time in their life says, I don't have to be an evil capitalist. I can be a social entrepreneur. This woman is telling us that it's possible to have your cake and see, serve it to the animals too. What would you tell them? Say, that's amazing. Go for it. Uh, I would say, don't wait one other day. The world needs companies like ours. It really does. I really feel that with all my being. It needs it because as we grow, we're going to be vocal about it too. We're going to be the activist company in a way. Um, Patagonia has always been known as the activist company, but we're going to follow suit because, you know, they have, if you go to Patagonia's website, whoever's listening, it's really inspiring because they have their causes first. They don't have their jacket show, you know, showcased and their products and all this. They're one of the biggest companies in the world today. And they lead with their causes. They had the petition against Trump at one point. They had all, well, you know, whatever he was doing. There was all this stuff and they don't care. They just lead with their, their hearts and really follow one thing. Is it good for the world? Is it good for people? Is it good for animals? And... Um, they're, they're living proof and so many other companies are living proof that you can, as you say, have your vegan cake and eat it too. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Now, I could talk to you forever, but unfortunately, we only do have a limited time. Do you have any final words, Margot, of advice for listeners today, in particular about financing their startup, about getting it to scale, about taking the yeah, leap? Yeah, well, you know, there's no better time than now. This is the best time to have, especially now. Like I was, you mentioned social. I'll just leave you with this, the social entrepreneurship and, and uh, having a company w with a social uh, purpose attached. Um, in seven to 10 years, companies that do not have uh, a mission like this or a, uh, like making a social impact will be almost dead in the water. In, in seven to 10 years, I was reading this report, this study that, that said that, that. And so I would say go for it. I would also say it's really, really important. One thing that it's knowing when to, to quit something. You know, as entrepreneurs, we're always saying, um, don't quit this or don't quit that. But if you're doing something that's not serving you, then, then know when to quit and lead with your heart. Well, thank you for leading with your heart, and we certainly know when to quit. You're listening to Dr. Sean Wise on the Startup Finance Podcast, broadcast over the Startup Canada Podcast Network. My guest today was Margo, the co-founder and CEO of the best deodorant in the world. Tell people where they can find you in the real world or on the net. So it's... Uh the best deodorant in the world, or sorry, the new site is thebestdeodorant.org. That's the new site in .org. Yep, that's it. Bestdeodorant.org, uh, yep. All, if you go there, um, you can find us everywhere else on social media. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Finance Podcast, a show dedicated to providing entrepreneurs with advice and experiences on startup finance. Want to access more resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca to gain access to support, resources, and events. And be sure while you're there to check out all the other original Startup Canada podcast series on the Startup Canada Podcast Network. <laughs>